0: It seems as time progresses that life, especially here in the Bay Area, seems to get busier and busier, almost frenetic at times. And in the midst of this busyness, our lives are no longer a series of well-planned decisions and commitments, but a string of reactions to what is happening in the here and now. And all of this feeds into the classic problem that people generally don't think enough. Nowadays, they just react. They react to the situation. They react to the last-minute opportunity. They react to the feelings of the moment. This practical problem becomes a spiritual one when we fail to think deeply about our salvation. When we don't stop to take a moment to reflect on the things of God, especially as they pertain to our salvation, we coast through our quiet times, we rush through our reading, we sail through our service, we fly through our fellowship, all the while refusing, sometimes even fearing to make any sort of long-term commitment. We are living life too fast. This morning, I want to commend to you the power of meditation, specifically as it pertains to the gospel and how the gospel has particularly impacted you. And in our next passage in 1 Timothy, this is exactly what Paul does. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 15 through 17 is our passage for the morning. Follow along as I read. Paul writes to his faithful friend, and true child in the Lord, Timothy, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What we see here in these three verses is Paul thinking through what God has done for him and responding to what God has done for him with praise and profession. And it is because of that this morning I want to give you four meditative responses to Paul's salvation. Four meditative responses to Paul's salvation. In other words, as Paul reflects on his own salvation, he responds with deep truth and praise that is proper for all believers It is a proper response for all of us, not just as we look at Paul's salvation, but as we understand that it is the same in our own salvation. Four meditative responses to Paul's salvation. The first response is that Paul proclaims his salvation. Paul proclaims his salvation. Look again at verse 15, but just the first part. He writes, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The first thought that Paul has is to proclaim the basis of who he is, the basis of his salvation. Now, the gospel message involves several factors. There are several facts that someone needs to believe to be saved. And these truths are often summarized, especially by us when we try to share the gospel, by the fact that Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But you understand that believing that simple fact is not enough. That fact, though crucial, is not the complete gospel, but... The complete gospel is attached to that statement. So if you start there, it doesn't fully make sense until you add other logical conclusions and read between the lines. Allow me to explain. Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This presupposes the fact that there are sinners to save, which is the first part of the gospel. You are a sinner. That he came into the world assumes that he came from somewhere, and that leads you down the path of discovering that Jesus Christ is God, and he came from heaven to take on the form of that which is in this world, which is man. And if he came to save sinners, that begs the question, how did he do that? That's where his sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection come in. And if that's the how, then what's the why? The why is because there is something to be saved from, namely the consequences of being a sinner, the wrath of God, which then brings us full circle to understanding that we are sinners not in the eyes of society, but in the eyes of our Maker. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I share all of this with you as a reminder of what evangelism and gospel salvation entails. If you are going to tell someone that Christ came to save them, or even that Christ died for their sins, then the sinlessness, or rather the sinfulness of man, the deity of Christ, and the miraculous death and resurrection must also be explained. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul knows all of that, even though he doesn't specify those aspects of the gospel here, which he certainly does elsewhere. And he doesn't elaborate on all the missing details because he knows that Timothy knows all of that as well. You see here, he's not giving Timothy a lesson on proper evangelism. That would be unnecessary. What Paul is doing is reflecting on his own salvation as an encouragement to Timothy of the power of God, which in turn will aid Timothy in his call to address false teachers. Now let's break down what Paul says here in verse 15. Let's begin with the phrase that we've already loosely unpacked. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, he says, is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. A trustworthy statement, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's trustworthy because it is true. A trustworthy statement is one you can put your faith in because it is a faithful presentation, in this case, of God's message. As such, and this is very important, God's own faithfulness his attribute of faithfulness serves as the guarantee of the faithfulness of his message. You understand this. Why do you believe him? Because he's an honest person, we say that, right? I trust this guy. He's never let, steered me wrong. And it is because of the character of God that he is faithful that we understand and trust the faithfulness of the message. It is trustworthy. Now, a trustworthy statement is a phrase that Paul actually uses five times in the pastoral epistles, and each time, including here, it introduces a summary of a key doctrine. And by saying that it is trustworthy, he is saying that this is a principle that will bring much comfort and courage to your life, because you need not doubt the Word of God you need not doubt the messenger of God so long as he is faithful to the text because the message represents the one who is faithful, true, and cannot lie. The confidence we have or that we can have in the message of God is especially pertinent when it comes to the seemingly impossible such as the fact that Christ came to save sinners, that God became man, To die for your sins. But the beauty of this is that the more impossible it seems, the more wonderful it is. And thus, Paul says in continuing that this statement is, quote, deserving full acceptance. There is no reason to doubt, there is no reason to question. Message received, message accepted message believed. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That he came, as I mentioned earlier, testifies to his preexistence. This is a very important theological fact. He did not come into existence in Mary's womb, but he existed as God in eternity past. In other words, he always was, he always has been. But what happened here is that he stepped out of heaven and into the physical world as a man, but for a specific purpose. And that purpose, as indicated by Paul's word too, was to save sinners, to save them from their sin and the consequences of those sins. In other words, to save sinners from spiritual death, enslavement to sin, darkness, judgment, and hell. Now, although we are overly familiar with the term, it is interesting to note that we are not told in this verse, if you look carefully, that Jesus came to save people from their sins. He does not say mankind from their sins, the human race. He calls us sinners. And that is because, in the ultimate and grand scheme of things, it is the most important designation of the unbeliever and, frankly, all people. Because the greatest need of the non-Christian is not more money. It is not happiness. It is not comfort. And that's because, despite how they may feel, Their greatest problem is not the lack of money, happiness, or comfort. Their greatest need is to be saved from their sin because their greatest problem is that they are sinners. And that is why Jesus came. He came to save you. He came to save me. He came to save Paul. All sinners, but Paul being the foremost... His words, not mine. And in a recognition, it is a recognition that he comes to as he meditates on his salvation and the person that he was before. Which brings us to our second meditative response to Paul's salvation. Paul professes his sinfulness. Paul professes his sinfulness. Look at the end of verse 15 talking about sinners, he says, among whom I am foremost of all. And for practical reasons and personal reasons, I'm going to ask you to meditate on that for 60 seconds. I will be right back. I don't know if you've heard, but they sell preaching pills now, so I just had to... No, I've actually um, wasn't planning to explain this, but I've had vertigo uh, this past week, which I've had two or three times in my life. Last time was uh, three years ago, and so I'm kind of wavy right now. So um, the O'Briens graciously went out and got me some medicine, so I figured maybe it'll kick in by 0.3. We'll see. Okay? Well, point number two, Paul professes his sinfulness. He says, among whom I am foremost of all. Here's a man who is forgiven and understands his redemption in the deepest theological ways possible. After all, he wrote down the very doctrines of salvation that you and I rely upon. And when he says that he is the foremost, he is saying he is the first in rank the most among sinners. And when he says that, this realization is not in spite of his understanding of God's grace. He's not saying I'm the foremost of sinners because he has a misunderstanding of what God has done for him, or maybe he thinks that God's grace is not enough. No. He understands and recognizes he is the foremost of sinners because of his understanding of God's grace. It is because he has such a profound comprehension of the doctrines of God and forgiveness that he realizes just how sinful he really is. He sees the glory and wonder of God and how truly God in the flesh was the only payment that could deal with his sins. If you've ever tried to piece together what drove Paul to such heights of service and sacrifice, you would be remiss to neglect this fact. It is more than a strengthening by God. It is beyond a battle with false teachers. It is more profound than a love of studying the Scriptures. It is a deep realization of the sin that God has forgiven, and in that forgiveness has allowed him to be used so mightily. It is a sense not of worth, it is a sense of unworth connected with God's grace that gives him the drive and the passion. And what's more, like us, sometimes I think we forget this about people in the scriptures, but like us, the forgiven sinner remains a practicing sinner. And so it was with Paul. Now, what he is saying here is not false humility. He has just told us in the verses we looked at last week that he wants the most vile of men with a particular preference of sinning directly against the Christian church. This is a genuine appreciation of his sins, but also of the grace of God. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 7, verses 22 through 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 22 through 25, where we see his recognition of past sins, but even the present battle. Starting in verse 22 of Romans chapter 7, he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. That's the flesh we talk about written pre-conversion. This is the Apostle Paul understanding how he is now saved and living in the grace of God. And so we just read in Romans 7 of a recognition not just of his past sins, but also his current ongoing battle with sin. And we all can relate all too well. In fact, it is often our present sins that cause us the most grief. Grief. It is the present sins that we feel the most guilty about, that we want to deal with and battle with. And I think we would do well to take a cue from the Apostle Paul. In the context of 1 Timothy 1, he is reminiscing on the sins of his past, which have been forgiven unto salvation. And when you put this in its proper place on the plate of the gospel, then you know that you are serving up an acknowledgement not just of what Christ has done but what you would be had he not. I definitely want you to take your ongoing sins seriously. It should occupy most of your energy but not to the detriment of remembering the sins of your past. Not for the sake of self-pity or guilt, but for the sake of rejoicing in what God has done with those sins and with your past. We talk often of preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. This is not just so we can feel bad about ourselves and get ourselves in line. It's treating the gospel like some sort of cheerleader at our bedside in the morning telling us, it's going to be a great day. That's not what it's about. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we recognize that the worst is in the past. And the fact that it is in the past is not just comforting because of the distance of time that stands between then and now, because the past was crucified on the cross of Christ. The freed prisoner is not any more free the further he drives away from the guard towers of the prison or the more that time. He is fully freed the moment those prison doors shut behind him and he is out in society. He is fully freed because of the fact that his penalty has been paid. No physical or temporal distance changes that. And it is the same idea with the one who was once imprisoned by sin. It is not time or distance from our non-Christian days that motivates us. It's the fact, again, that the non-Christian days were dealt with on the cross. And it doesn't matter if you were saved this morning or 50 years ago. You are just as free, no matter how far And how long it has been. And lest you think that because you are a new creation in Christ that you cannot forget or that you can forget about the past, notice that Paul says not that he was the foremost of sinners, but that he is. Yes, all things have been made new. Yes, you are no longer enslaved to your sin. Yes, you have been called, saved, and sealed. But all that you once were is still part of your story and it makes up who you are. In fact, it leads up and it is the source and the reason for the most important part of the story and that is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It's like a train emerging from a dark tunnel and into the light of day. So the timeline of your life began and continued in darkness until that instantaneous moment of time that you are saved and brought into the light. The tunnel, the darkness is in the past. And all I'm saying is that like Paul, don't forget that moment you were brought out of the tunnel. And don't forget the tunnel. And so, it is not strange that Paul is encouraged by the fact that he is the foremost of sinners because the greater the sin, the greater the mercy. Look at verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. This is where we find our third meditative response to Paul's salvation Paul perceives his significance. Paul perceives his significance. Paul's reasoning in verse 16 is this. If Jesus can save someone like me, surely that proves to the world that he can save anyone. And here's the cool thing as he says this. When Paul wrote this, there were still many people living Jewish, Gentile, and Christian that knew Paul personally or knew of Paul when he was a blaspheming, persecuting, violent aggressor against the church. I mean, we read this knowing his story. Imagine reading this having experienced the persecution of Saul. Let's look at the verse. He says that because he is the foremost of sinners, Jesus made an example of him to show Christ's mercy and perfect patience. Usually, when we talk about or experience the concept of someone being made an example, it's usually like a warning to other people. We're going to make an example of him to scare other people so that people realize that they'll share the same fate. And that, in some ways, is exactly what Jesus did with Paul, except it wasn't a negative example, but a positive. And it wasn't a warning, it was a promise. And before we get into the particulars of what was exemplified in Paul, we must not look past the phrase, for this reason. Because this answers the question why does God save anyone? Often, in the ignorant rebellion of man, the question that is asked is, why doesn't God save everyone? But the real question should be, why does God save anyone at all? And if that question, understanding the sovereignty and power of God, if that question, why why does God save anyone at all, doesn't make sense to you, let me rephrase it. Why would God save any of his rebellious creation who have declared war against him and have demonstrated century after century that they want nothing to do with him outside of making him an object of mockery and a scapegoat for anything they dislike? The answer to that question is seen in the fact that God demonstrates his perfect patience. In other words, he saves not merely to keep people out of hell. He saves not merely to get people into heaven. He saves not merely so we will serve him and not just so Paul would write the epistles. God saves rebellious, wretched, wicked man to glorify By himself, to display his grace and mercy and patience and power. Don't get me wrong. He wants to save us, but it is not primarily for us. It is for him. And with that in mind, the rest of it makes sense. The first way that Paul says Jesus glorified himself and made an example of Paul was by showing Paul mercy. We saw last week in verse 13 when Paul explains that he received mercy despite or because of his gross sin. Generally, we speak of mercy, especially in the context of salvation, as the withholding of the wrath that sin deserves, that sin has earned, It is part and parcel of the forgiveness of God. Mercy also relates to the characteristic of compassion as well as the removal of guilt. That's closer to the idea we employ when we say, oh, that person was shown mercy by the judge or shown mercy by his enemy. We talk about ministries of mercy, right? They're ministries of compassion, and all of that is encompassed in that word, mercy, now, Paul goes on to say that there was a reason for this mercy, and that reason is that by mercifully forgiving Paul, Jesus demonstrates his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for a eternal life. Now, this is very interesting. When we speak of salvation, and usually when Paul writes about salvation, we talk about things like grace, faith, But understand that patience is essential to God's ability to save us. In other words, patience is crucial to the gospel. Because in addition to being a God of mercy and grace, God, as you know, is also a God of wrath, which shows why we need to be saved in the first place. Now, if there is no consequence for our sin, wrath, then there is no need for salvation. But since there is judgment and there is wrath, it is only possible if there is patience from God for this simple reason. He cannot save that which he has already destroyed you get that? Wrath and judgment, which are defining characteristics of God, mean that we are to be destroyed instantly. Since life begins at conception, then we deserve wrath and eternal destruction at the moment of conception. Then how is it possible that all believers existed, give or take, for nine months in their mother's womb, were born, got to the point of intellectual recognition and understanding of the gospel, some rebelling for decades and then being saved. Where is God's wrath? Where is the judgment? That's where the patience comes in. Patience holds back his wrath, not forever before a time. Patience means long-suffering and is used in the scripture speak of God delaying judgment for. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 1 Peter 3.18 speaks of the patience of God upon wicked man during the days of Noah, giving them time before the flood to repent as he spent those years building the ark. Speaking of Christ's promise to return, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, his promise to return, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You want to know? Why Jesus Christ has not returned yet? Because upon his return, there will be great wrath and devastation. He is being patient with the world. Second Peter 3.15, Peter equates God's patience with the opportunity for salvation. And as Paul reflects on his own salvation in First Timothy, we know that God was very patient with him in the midst of his persecution of the early church. What about you? As you reflect on your own life and you see your past in light of the seriousness of any sin, you too will recognize that God has been patient with you. He did not take your life. He did not condemn your soul for all those fits of anger, the lies and lusts, the hatred and hurt. He was patient with you unto the day of, Until the day of salvation. And when it comes to Paul, the foremost of sinners, he realizes that the patience of God in his life serves as an example to others. And the idea is that if God is willing to show mercy and patience to someone as wicked as Saul, then surely he can save others. The word example he uses here of himself originally referred to a sketch. Or an outline. And Paul says, I am a model. I am a pattern. Living proof that God can save anyone. Because if God's patience can extend to the worst of sinners, then nobody is beyond the reach of His mercy and grace. And if you ever doubt that, look back at the real-life illustration of Saul. Go back to verse 13. Go back to the passages and acts that we looked at last week. And what Paul is doing here is as if a former serial killer who is now a Christian was sharing his testimony of the mercy and patience of God. And he's telling people, you think you're too wicked to be saved? You think your spouse is too sinful to be shown mercy? You think your dad is too far gone for the patience of Christ? Well, look at me. Look at me, a former serial killer. He saved me. This is what Paul is doing. And although obvious, we must not overlook the fact that the example God provides in the Apostle Paul is not that he was saved to a better life, but eternal life. And so it is with anyone else. And the eternality of life, you understand when we talk about Eternal life, when we use that phrase, when the scriptures use that phrase, it's not just about the fact that it is never-ending. It is also referring to the quality of that eternal life. And this is evidenced by the fact that heaven is referred to as eternal life, but hell never is despite it being technically eternal life. It speaks of the quality of life we will have in the presence of God. So, when I say that our third point is that Paul perceives his significance, it is not a significance that is inherent in Paul, but a significance rendered unto him by God so that the content of significance, mercy, patience, salvation, can be shown to others. Remember, we are looking at ways in which Paul responds to his meditation upon his own salvation. And as much as he understands the theological and practical reasons for his salvation, it does not stop him from bursting out in truth based emotion. And that's what all emotion for the Christian should be based on truth. Too often it's the other way around. We see him do this in verse 17. In a powerful outburst of praise. It seems strange to be put here in the middle of chapter 1 and not at the end of the epistle. But he can't hold back. He can't control himself. He has been meditating on his salvation and he bursts, bursts forth in praise. And we're looking at four meditative responses to Paul's salvation. They all lead up to what we are seeing now. Paul proclaims his salvation. He professes his sinfulness. He perceives his significance. And finally, he praises his Savior. Look at verse 17. Now to the immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What we have here in verse 17 is what we call a doxology. It is a term that refers to an expression of praise to God. It simply comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory, logia, which is a spoken or written expression. So an expression of glory, a praise of God. We see several of these doxologies in Paul's epistles, some are simple, like the one in Galatians 1.5, which simply says, to whom be the glory forevermore, amen. Others are more elaborate, the doxology here being one of the most elaborate. Now, because God is a God of perfection and truth, there is no better way to praise Him than to simply reiterate what is true about Him to simply reiterate what he has already said about himself. And frankly, to do anything else runs the risk of heresy. When something is perfect, why add to it? If something is exact, why make any adjustments? If something is objectively true, why bring in the subjective? So Paul sticks with what he knows to be true but in response to his salvation, does not just list them like some sort of theological cheat sheet. He means these, he feels these, he wonders at these. Let's take a look. He is essentially saying, to God be honor and glory forever. But Paul is so overwhelmed with God's amazing grace that he doesn't just say God, he describes him. And first he calls him King Eternal, a Jewish title for God that literally means the king of the ages, which is closer to the ESV translation. And in the Jewish mindset, there are two ages, the present age and the age to come. We can add to that and say this term is a recognition of the fact that God rules as king, past, present, and future. So there are two nuances here that God is king, and secondly, that God is always king. Immortal means incorruptible, not subject to decay or destruction. This is an attribute that is intrinsic to who God is. Romans one twenty three says that the problem with mankind is that they exchange the worship of the incorruptible or immortal for that which is corruptible. Animals, themselves, things like that. Incidentally, this is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe the believer's resurrection body. Fascinating stuff. Due to technical difficulties, we lost this part of the sermon. Professes his sinfulness, perceives his significance, and then praises his Savior. I believe there is much that we can learn from the Apostle Paul here. On the one hand, he does not look at his service and commitment to the Lord today as some sort of redemption for his sin against the Lord yesterday. He is fully aware that it is all God's grace. It is an undeserved gift. He is driven with a proper balance of an intellectual knowledge and personal experience of forgiveness coupled with an intellectual knowledge and personal experience of sin. There is no comparing himself to others while saying, I'm not as bad as that guy, Well, there were other Pharisees that were worse than me. The only comparison he makes is to say that he's the worst. There's no looking to himself as having made up for anything of what he did in the past. Yet, on the other hand, there is no living in the past such that he convinces himself that he is so sinful that he is unworthy for service. In fact, it it is his total appreciation for his unworthiness of God's mercy that drives him to serve him all the more. We all fall somewhere on this scale. We either tend toward thinking we are too sinful to do any good for God and the church, or we just don't serve because we don't realize how sinful we truly are and how much God has given us. If you don't realize how sinful you truly are, then the grace and forgiveness of God will not motivate you to get off your couch and make a difference for God. And notice that Paul makes no mention Of what he has done for the Lord. Nor does he make mention of being too sinful to serve. He does not take into consideration his physical or social circumstances. Nor does he allow his feelings to have a place in his doctrine. Those things are all fleeting, those things are all subjective. All he looks at are the objective facts. He is a wretched sinner, and God showed him mercy. Meditative reflection on his salvation. And when we think that we are too sinful to serve, we are thinking unbiblically because the focus is on us rather than on the power and forgiveness of God. Outside of total unbelief, outside of being a non Christian, There is nothing in the Scriptures that tells you that you are too sinful to serve the body. And when you think like that, you are letting your mind stray from the objective facts that Paul sets forth here, which are sinner saved. That's it. Then there are those who are satisfied with where they're at with the Lord. No real drive to do more. Once in a while, based on an emotional retreat and time together, you may have a personal conviction. Maybe it's from a sermon, a quiet time. But that conviction is fleeting because you have not connected those convictions to the objective, immovable pillars of sinner and saved. Oh, yeah, I need a. I need to serve more and be more committed. And a year later, you're more absent than ever. I need to start budgeting to give more to the church. A year later, nothing has changed. And this may be because your convictions are tied to fleeting and subjective emotions and circumstances rather than rooted in the fact that you are a wretched sinner who was shown divine mercy and patience. And the solution to either of those extremes is simple. And I think of John Newton, perhaps most famous for writing the most famous hymn in history, Amazing Grace. Powerful words. But in your mind... If you're not familiar with the story already, I believe I'm about to make them more powerful. You see, John Newton was a slave trader. We call him this, generally speaking, for two reasons. Because he captained ships carrying slaves, and on a financial level, he personally invested in the slave trade. And then he got saved and became a very vocal abolitionist he repented of his sins and looking upon his gross and wretched sins as a slave trader knowing all that was involved treating human beings like machinery not caring if they died aside from the financial loss he understood his sin Repented. True repentance. He didn't just stop doing what he was doing in slavery. He went on and campaigned to end slavery. He became a cleric in the Anglican church, which just means on leadership of an Anglican church. And in the midst of his service to the Lord, he wrote this. And I believe in these simple words is where we find the solution if we have ever thought that we're too sinful to serve, if we ever thought how I serve is good enough because we're not reflecting truly on our salvation and who we are and what Christ has done and who we were, he said this, I am not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. And I am not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we sit here understanding that we are no longer the men and women we used to be. Struggling with sin, yes. Enslaved, no. Because of your grace. And like the Apostle Paul, you know that at one point or another, we have all thought that we are the foremost of sinners. I pray that whatever thoughts we may have regarding our salvation and our past and present sin, that we would not think that we are not good enough to serve Because in reality, it is only your strength that gives us the ability to serve. Help us to not be so content and satisfied with where we are spiritually and how proactive we are in serving you and your people. May we meditate on the realities of what you have given us, what you have done for us, and be motivated and driven like the Apostle Paul. And maybe you don't have the depth of ministry for us that you had for Paul, but we know that you have a plan, you have made your commands and opportunities very clear to us. May we live in light of not just wanting to make people happy, not wanting to fill needs, but in light of your mercy and patience. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.